Sports News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have announced their re-election campaign for 2024 in a video message that took aim at the beginning at MAGA extremists and focused on President Biden's investing in America agenda. But you know, around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms, cutting Social Security that you paid for your entire life while cutting taxes for the very wealthy, dictating what health care decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. Some progress has been made on reaching a deal for raising the debt ceiling, but not through negotiations with the White House. While President Biden and the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, are still deadlocked on their proposals, a bipartisan group of lawmakers in the Problem Solvers Caucus has endorsed a framework for what they call advancing a sustainable budget. For a conversation on this and more, we bring in our panel. Fox News contributor, host of the Ben Dominich podcast, editor-at-large at The Spectator, Ben Dominich. Co-host of The Five, Democratic strategist Jessica Tarloff, and Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. I want to start with the launch, Ben, and this is, you know, it's interesting. It, it goes, obviously, on the day of the launch of the 2020 campaign. Uh, it's structured similarly with the video. Back then, it was a focus at the beginning on Charlottesville and that march in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is a focus on January 6th. And uh, it's it's a, just an interesting take for a launch of a campaign uh, to run for re-election. I just want to get your thoughts on it. It's certainly an interesting take uh, when it comes from an incumbent president who has, uh, you know, through his White House and through his surrogates, stressed how much he has done to improve the American economy, to stabilize it in his framework uh, in the aftermath of, of a, you know, the disruption of the t- pandemic. But I think that this launch really felt more like last time's launch. It's one of these situations where, you almost would expect him to, you know, if he really believed that messaging that the White House was putting out, to lean into optimism and hope and uplift and a morning in America kind of message. Instead, it's much more about fear mongering about what would come if Republicans were possibly allowed to win. A doubling down on the 2022 approach uh, that I believe Democrats really have faith in as a path back to the presidency. And I think that speaks to the overall weakness of the support that the president currently has. We've seen the enormous poll numbers uh, among Americans who really do not want to see him run again. And so instead, he and his campaign team have decided to lean into the idea that, uh, you know, if he doesn't run again, there are uh, dragons waiting in the seas. And that's something that I think is a riskier approach if only given the fact that we don't know if Donald Trump is going to be the nominee of the Republican Party in 2024. Certainly is the odds on favorite at this point. But it essentially translates to a message that says, Republicans, please nominate Donald Trump 
because he's the one guy that I'm preparing to run against. Jessica, it does feel, as I mentioned, like the original launch video and Charlottesville mention. Um, it also feels a little bit like the speech in front of Independence Hall with <laughs> it bathed in red light and right. you know the MAGA speech that got so much coverage. Uh, if it's not Donald Trump, and again, as ben, ben mentions, you know, he's up 10, 20, 30 points, depending on the poll in the primary. Um, if it's not, does the message suffer? I think the message will have to be tweaked. And by that, I mean that aspects of the video will have to be cut and pasted into different sections of it. Uh, he did mention in the video, talked about things like book banning. That's a central issue. And how people talk about what Governor DeSantis has been doing in Florida. I think it was hugely important that the number two image in the launch video was about abortion. That was the winning issue for Democrats in the 2022 midterms, and it will be a centerpiece of the 2024 election, no matter who the opponent is. And, you know, even arguably Governor DeSantis um, would be even better for that messaging than Donald Trump. Uh, since DeSantis just signed a six week abortion ban in Florida. Um, so I do take the point that this is clearly geared at President Trump, but President Trump right now is the person who's in charge of the primary or at the top of the, the polls in the primary and is still the leader of the party, whether you know the folks who are running and a lot of donors like it or not. I think there were also good bits and pieces about the accomplishments, images of the president and vice president standing with their new Supreme Court justice um, signing bills. It makes you think, you know, well, what are those ones? And then you remember that we have bipartisan gun reform, that we have bipartisan infrastructure. We had the PACT Act, the CHIPS Act, which brought thousands of jobs to America. So those kinds of things were ever present. But yes, I think that the overall message is going to be the same as 2020, 2020 which is this is still the battle for the soul of the nation. And we haven't quite won it yet, but we will in the next four years. You know, Chad, I'm interested about Jessica's comment about abortion and how it's going to be such a primary issue in 24. Clearly, it affected 22. Um, you know, you ask that question. It does not bubble up to the top, uh, except for young people. And that's significant. Um, you just had Nikki Haley, uh, former South Carolina governor, former ambassador to the U.N., come out in a speech and say, that these state bans would not, in her administration, be lifted up to the federal level. In other words, they're trying to find, Republicans are, a way to talk about this uh, issue because they do seem vulnerable. Is that the feeling you get on Capitol Hill, too? Republicans got bludgeoned on the abortion issue after the Dobbs decision last year in the midterms. And they're very concerned about how this polls, as you say, with these younger voters. Uh, this is why there's been a push here, here on Capitol Hill among Republicans, you know, to pass some sort of abortion bill. Lindsey Graham has talked about something here. But you've had, you know, the very hard right, uh, very pro-life members, uh, you know, not able to move something that they promised uh, in the early part of this Congress. And part of that is because it probably goes to the extreme. And the issue is, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the air after the Supreme Court uh, ruling on Mifepristone last week. You know, the more that this is in the bloodstream, the political bloodstream here, and they're talking about abortion, it reminds these voters about where the Republican Party is and where the Democrats are. And this is this narrative that Republicans used to be hands off, small government. Now they want to get involved more so. And that really ticks off these younger voters who are pro-choice. Chad, I want to stay with you in that uh, this pitch for re-election. Also, there's a couple lines in there that say I'm the president of all Americans. 
and I want to reach across the aisle and get things done. Besides the infrastructure bill where Republicans did vote for it, uh, there has been a ton of evidence that this president is in the active reaching across the aisle mode um, and evidenced by the, the debt ceiling debate and proposals. Um, he has not reached out to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. What is the status of all this? Well, basically, he doesn't have to yet politically, uh, although you have a lot of Democrats and almost all Republicans saying, where is he? He needs to reach out. The reason he's not reaching out is because Kevin McCarthy has put together his own debt ceiling bill. And it remains at this point in time unclear whether or not Kevin McCarthy can pass his own bill. Now, that is, you know, catastrophic for Kevin McCarthy. You know, this goes back to the speaker's race here. Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman, says he has to do his job as speaker. You know, you talk about why doesn't, you know, President Biden come and talk to Kevin McCarthy. Corinne Jean-Pierre is saying, you know, he has to get his people in line and pass their own bill. Then we can talk Turkey. And this is why uh, the president has remained on the sidelines. It might be so is dangerous. He three, four votes away. I mean, what, where's the head count? Yeah, we think it might be a little bit north of that here because he can lose. It's all about the math, Brett, right? Four yes. votes on his side of the aisle. You know, this is the real test for Kevin McCarthy. What we've seen are some very conservative members saying uh, we want stiffer work re requirements if you're going to qualify for food benefits and certain federal health programs. And then this other issue that's come up here is ethanol. Now, you might remember in the Inflation Reduction Act, that was something that was given assistance. That's always a big issue for Midwestern uh, voters, as, as one Republican I talked to this week said. This goes back to Bob Dole in 1988. Uh, so you have that issue there. And so they want to repeal some of that assistance. And when you talk to all of the Iowa House Republicans and you talk to some of the Missouri ones and the Illinois ones, Michelle Fishbach from Minnesota, that's a problem for them. So I can get you to six or seven on the ethanol issue alone. And what's interesting is that you have certain members who did not vote against the IRA last summer. And these are these freshmen. I would look at Zach Nunn, who's a freshman. Inflation Reduction Iowa. Act, which right, really wasn't, exactly. but anyway, it's named that. Right. Yeah, we can talk about that. <laughs> and then you have Mark Alford, uh, who's a freshman from Missouri. And, and, and this is the issue here. So Kevin McCarthy has said, all right, uh, earlier this year, in order to get the speakership, we're going to have an open process. People can offer their own, own amendments. So they're meeting in the Rules Committee, and I'm told that this bill is locked down. And that's not what he offered, because it's easier to pass a bill that's locked down. This is what House Speaker Nancy Pelosi used to do. So does Kevin McCarthy have to open up that bill in some way to do a sidecar to appease these members about ethanol or some other issue? And once you do that, that is Pandora's box, because everyone will be at the Rules Committee door saying, what about my plan? What about my program? What about my amendment? And therein lies the problem for Kevin McCarthy, getting the vote matrix to work on his own bill. And you know mm -hmm. what? If he gets it through, that is a big win. But if he can't get it through or there's a lot of drama, that loss, that negative is bigger than the political win he would get on the other side. Panel, we'll hold it right there. OK, so let's just say he gets the vote somehow, some way, cobbles together this coalition, which is very fragile and on the edge uh, vote wise. But Ben, he gets the votes. And then then does President Biden have to sit down and say, OK, let's negotiate more likely. You'll probably want to get the Senate on the board at some point here. But what yeah. is going to have to pass has to have 60 votes. And that's where it becomes very tough for Kevin McCarthy, because does he allow the nation to default or does he try to salvage his speakership? And on this vote, I talked to arguably, one senior person. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let me just step in. Ben, yeah. arguably, yeah. 
it goes both ways. I mean, it's not like it, it he's letting the ways. country default. President Biden has to step in and say, okay, let's get something across the finish yes. line. I, and, and frankly, I think that the, the win is just Kevin McCarthy getting to that point. I mean, this is, in a sense, and this is something that actually I noticed a number of Democrats talking about over the past uh, couple of days, uh, including uh, just uh, you know the, the other day, uh, someone who I've known for uh, quite some time pointing out how amazing it is to see essentially a House Freedom Caucus, you know, right wing of the party, essentially working on behalf of McCarthy within this fight, which is not something that we've historically seen within the Republican coalition. And this goes back to something that I've been arguing for years, which is that uh, the misuse, the misapplication of the House Freedom Caucus and their energy, uh, these strong fiscally conservative members uh, within these debt fights, using them against their own party was something that benefited Democrats dramatically. And the fact that McCarthy made the deals that he did when it came to attaining that speakership essentially invested the the hardliners, people like Chip Roy, people like Thomas Massey, uh, in his own success when it comes to fights like this. And I asked Chip Roy personally uh, when I ran into him the other day in Washington uh, about his own ambitions when it came to this debt limit fight. And he essentially you know, tr said very, very practically, we simply have some things that we want to achieve in terms of sending a message about the need for fiscal sanity in Washington. And if those things are achieved, then we understand the need to avoid default. That's something that is a much more practical approach to this battle than I think we've seen historically when it comes to uh, the, the fractures within the Republican coalition. And it speaks to the different nature of the relationship that this leadership class has with their right wing. Yeah, I, I, listen, debt and deficit, it's true. It's not a sexy thing to talk about on a campaign, mm -hmm. Jessica. It is, you have the President of the United States now putting in his reelection video, don't touch Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. You have the former president saying, don't touch Social Security and Medicare, lambasting and hitting other candidates who maybe previously voted for something in the long term uh, to deal with the entitlements so that they stay around. But we can't even talk about it. And then you have both parties that are spending in the past, you know, like drunken sailors when they get control of Congress. So it's not an attractive issue to campaign on. No, it definitely isn't, especially when you know, and I mean, Gen Z has been doing their part, but we all are well aware of the fact that it's senior citizens who show up to vote. They're the ones who also work the polls, and they're the ones who really want to make sure that their Social Security and Medicare isn't touched. And in the bill that uh, President Biden said today that he would absolutely veto, there were work requirements put in on recipients of federal aid, including the Medicaid program. That's something that also will be a non-starter. So you're right. I mean, everyone wants to run around and do these big events and talk about these big, exciting things. Um, but politics is one on these unsexy issues when you have something like entitlements on the chopping block. And I actually... Um, before I got to Fox, I worked on the polling team that did the Simpsons Bowls Commission. Um, Which was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. It was something that Democrats and Republicans could really agree on. And I get it that it was a blue dog Democrat uh, set of ideas. But every time that you ask people about what they were willing to give up, everyone said that they we live in a society where we need to make sure that we don't go bankrupt, right? That's quite an obvious thing. And then you said, okay, well, how much would you be willing to give up of your own, right? Of your social security, of your Medicare, et cetera. 
and then crickets. That's just not something that can happen. And eventually that's why the commission failed. There's yeah. Sorry, the problem sexier, is, is that it's how it's framed. sexier than Simpson Bowls, I just have to say. The Simpson Bowls yeah, is very well. sexy. <laughs> but, however, you know, had it been taken up, had President yep. Trump, when he got in, said, okay, we're going to figure this out. We're going to go down this road. And if you want to take something out, you got to put something back in. You know, I mean, like, it was very structured the right way, where Democrats and Republicans could argue, barter, whatever. Eventually, our country has to turn the aircraft carrier of state even just a little bit so that right. not this generation of seniors, not even the next generation of seniors, but down the road, we've got to figure it out. Otherwise, the debt keeps on creeping up. And if interest rates go up, even 1%, we pay more on debt on the interest on our debt than we pay for defense spending. So those are crazy numbers that everybody glazes over. You know, well, I, Brett, I, it's I, interesting. I, go ahead, Brett. Go ahead, Jeff. No, I just, just quickly, I, I want to point out, there is there was this inflection point where we could have dealt with this in the past. And obviously, that does include Simpson Bowles, which is, I think, you know, something that was, you know, as close as we got to having any real movement on this. Uh, but we're now reaching a point where things are getting into into this silly area where, you know, uh, Jessica, I know, has, uh, you know, if any of us who have young children, we're looking at them and we're looking at people who are not going to have any kind of benefit from right. any of these programs that are that were supposed to be, you know, a guarantee is being a part of, of being America, of being an American citizen. Um, and the fact that we can't achieve any movement on this, I think, you know, speaks to how much we've entrenched power for far too long in, in people who are unwilling to give even an inch on any of these programs, even a slight, you know, the math problem of Social Security of saying, let's just slowly move this upward, given that people are living so much longer and the program was never meant to cover you for this long. And unfortunately, in Washington, we just have not seen any movement in that regard and I don't see any possibility that's going to continue in a, in a realm in which both the leading candidate on the right and the incumbent president on the left uh, are saying hands off completely. Yeah, I mean, it's not sexy, but it is about governing. And, you know, it's hard to remember, but only three presidential cycles ago, we had the Republican nominee for president and vice president campaigning in front of a debt clock around the country, <laughs> Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan we're talking about it all the time. And what Donald Trump saw were commercials against Paul Ryan where they're pushing the old grandmother over the cliff and it right. viscerally affected him to the point where he is now campaigning against other Republicans, Chad, on this issue, which is really amazing. And, and you know what's interesting, too, about every time we get into one of these big debt ceiling hullabaloos, which is what we're entering now probably for the next six or seven weeks, is that if and when they finally do get an agreement, they usually have some sort of a modest pact which does something to spending. Uh, we had that even though they had the failed super committee in the summer of 2011. They had sequestration, which did restrict some spending, but they never have actually touched entitlements, which is what Ben was talking about. And, and Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, debt service is increasingly a problem. So if there is going to be some sort of a deal in this, there probably has to have, and this is where the negotiation comes in, there probably has to be, you know, some sort of cuts. And what that looks like right now is anybody's guess. And that's what is so scary to people here on Capitol Hill is that no one has a sense. Kevin McCarthy's plan actually does address some of that, shaves about four and a half trillion dollars in spending over the next decade. 
But again, that's not the plan that can get through the Senate. So because the Senate has not engaged, the president has not engaged, Mitch McConnell has even said, you know, it's time for the president to, you know, you know, act like a grown-up and get to the negotiating table. Uh, you know, you're having this increasing chorus there. At some point that will happen. But does it happen too late and does it happen once there is a market shock or Moody's or Standard & Poor's marks down the credit worthiness of the United States that happen after they raised the debt ceiling in 2011? If this drama gets to be too much, I'm told they could do that preemptively, and that would force people on Capitol Hill to get religion real fast. Chad, to end where we uh, began on the uh, president's reelection bid, is there excitement in Democratic circles up on Capitol Hill about this? Uh, there is not. Uh, there is support. And you also have kind of resignation from Democrats, Democrats saying, we realize what the alternative is here. We realize that we think former President Trump is going to be the GOP nominee and that President Biden is best positioned to beat him. They think that they have restructured the the blue wall in the upper Midwest here. Uh, They think that there is a toxicity with former uh, President Trump. But it's not so much about that they support President Biden. Yes, they're glad, as Jessica said, they got infrastructure done and chips and, you know, a little bit on firearms and a couple of other issues. There's still things that liberals would like done, something deeper on, say, a modified Green New Deal or police reform. Those are the things he did not get done, uh, you know, before the midterms. Uh, But they realize that this is the best horse that they have out there right now. And so the alternative is so much worse. And so part of the campaign is just not to remind people of what President Biden achieved with those legislative accomplishments last year, but to come back and say, you remember what the alternative was. And this is where they, you know, talk about the chaos of January 6th or, you know, and this is where they might even talk about the chaos among House Republicans if they can't pass a debt ceiling deal or something like that. Right. Jessica, final words. I mean, is is that a fair characterization of Democrats? I think it is overall, but I would add that I think an important aspect of it is the VP issue more so than it is about Joe Biden. And she's prominent in that video. She's very prominent in the video. And it was a clear signal to everyone out there who's saying, you know, maybe we could slip someone else in there that this is the team. It's the Biden-Harris team for uh, 2024. And we do know that her popularity numbers are worse than President Biden's and that a lot of people are kind of looking around and saying, well, what have you accomplished? No, it is very hard to accomplish things as vice president for any vice president. Um, But I think that a lot of the apprehension about Biden's reelection is what happens if you know, he's going to be 82 when he takes office, 86 when he leaves office, if all goes to plan. Now, what if he gets sick? What if he just can't do the job? Whose hands will the presidency be in? And people don't really feel that they have a good handle on what a president Kamala Harris would be like. And frankly, they rejected her in the primary. She didn't even get a you know a ballot cast for her. She dropped out before uh, Iowa. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big part of the concern about the Biden relaunch. Um, but I'm I'm personally excited that at least he's in. We know what we're working with, and now we wait to see what comes of the Republican side. Yeah, we could stop asking him that question every yeah. rope line. Um, he also eventually, Ben, has to sit for interviews and actually talk to voters and actually you know, talk to reporters. I He's sure, I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope so, Brett, and uh, and I hope he and I hope he does a good job of it. And I, I just want to say one note on this is that you know I hear a lot of Republican friends and, and conservatives who say you know it's it's uh, you know I want to. 
hear more of him because he'll embarrass himself. I don't think that's a good thing for the country. You know, I, I don't like the idea of a president who doesn't project confidence and who all Americans can have confidence in regardless of party. Uh, but I do think that it would be terrible for this campaign to adopt once again, a, a kind of basement campaign approach, avoiding questions, avoiding interviews, avoiding interaction with people. I think they should do the opposite. If they have confidence in him, his ability to be president again, not just for one year or two years, but for four years, all the way to 86, as, as uh, Jessica Tarlov just said to us, we we want him to be able to make it. We don't want to reelect a president and have the the uh, the in our the back of our heads the idea that he's not going to make it four years. Um, and I think that uh, doing a lot of interviews, taking a lot of questions, would go a long way in order to assuaging the doubts about that question. But you know, again, the, the prominence of Kamala was clearly an intentional choice to get rid of this pal palace intrigue about the idea that she might be replaced on the ticket or something like that uh, for someone who might be, you know, potentially more suitable in terms of taking over the reins. We we really see in her, I think, a mistake on the part of Joe Biden. I think that if he had chosen one of the other potentials, uh, there might be more confidence. But people really do not want to see a handoff. They want to see Joe Biden make it all four years if they reelect him. It'll be fascinating to see what uh, pub public relations strategy they choose. We hope it mm -hmm. turns. To the positive um, as far as access. Thank you all. Now for a bit of history. On April 25th, 1898, the United States formally declared war on Spain two months after the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor under mysterious circumstances. The media coverage of the sinking of the naval vessel solidified public approval of the war, and within months, the United States had defeated the Spanish army in both the Americas and the Spanish-occupied Philippines. In December of 1898, the United States and Spain agreed to the Treaty of Paris, which gave the United States control of the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Guam, and solidified the U.S. as a global power. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. For Ben, Jessica, and Chad, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.